0: A lot more time in elementary school classrooms over the past few months, and I wanted to share a quick little story of a conversation I had with a couple of second graders after they hit each other, which, by the way, I don't know if it was just me, is there more hitting in schools these days? Because I somehow missed it. Like, I've never been in a fight in my life, which is obvious because I'm still alive, it, anyway, seems, seems like there's more. So these, these two second graders are sitting in an office. I'm having a conversation with them about what happened and, and how do we fix this. And this little girl um, says to me, My mama told me I can defend myself. So if someone hits me, I can hit them back. Now, how many of you are slightly conflicted at this point? Right? How many of you are like, There's a part of me that says, You go, girl. Like I don't want you. I don't want you being hit. I don't want anyone taking advantage of you. And then there's well, we are at a school, and I guarantee you that nothing happened that day that was worth getting into a fight, right? This was a petty argument about name calling, etc. But. Um, I wanted I wanted you to feel just a little bit of that tension. I I realize that story. I realized that this morning. The story is probably not as applicable to the passage that we're studying today, um, because it had nothing to do with faith. Right? It was it was a petty elementary school argument. But there is that tension, I think, within all of us, of the the fight or flight, and the justice. That we all want to see. But school setting or not. What's the Christ-like attitude to have? Either in situations like that. or, Or more applicable in the situations. That we're going to look at today. Where because of faith. Things are happening to you. That aren't just. I think sometimes. We envision ourselves in prison rules. And I, I know a lot about prison because I've seen movies, but right? But the, the never show weakness. You strike first, strike hard, or you lose. Right? And and yet if that's if that's our first instinct, okay, we're gonna have to do some throat exercises because we're gonna have a hard pill to swallow with the passage here. Because what Peter is going to describe for us is that we should value winning over, over winning. Winning over, overwinning. So let's jump into the passage. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 17 today. And here's what Peter has to say to us. Beginning with, finally all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. This passage summarizes the honoring passages that we've gone through in the past few weeks honoring other believers, honoring the government, honoring supervisors, and honoring spouses. Verse 8 gives us the structure to make those relationships successful and Christ-like. It's not win-lose language. These are characteristics that are supposed to be win-win, even if it feels like losing. The context of verse 8 is likely other believers, other Christians, Um, but again, the characteristics are Christ-like. So, they apply in all situations. We're supposed to demonstrate those in all circumstances. They have an interesting structure that was pointed out by one commentator. You have some bookends of of head things, right? Harmony, unity of mind, and humility, a humble mind. Those, Those sandwich in sympathy and compassion, heart. Things. And in the middle, central to all of these characteristics, is love. And I think there are a few definitions that might be helpful as we do look at these characteristics. Um, I pulled pulled a number of these from a a commentator and a scholar named I, Howard Marshall. He just had a a real gift of words, especially with this passage of describing some of these characteristics and what it might mean for us. Unity of mind or harmony. Uh, What he wrote is, if I believe that God is calling me to do something particular in my life, then it must be. Harmonize with my duties towards other Christians in helping them to do what God calls them to do. I found that really profound. He, he kind of summarized the temptation that we that we have by saying that that our temptation is to think that our calling, even our calling from God, when we pull His name into this, outweighs concern for others, you know at its base, this is This is getting along with others to accomplish the purposes of God more effectively. That's what this unity means. Our temptation is is to be divisive or or siloed and just totally independent, everyone for themselves. But to be complementary, with an E, complementary, in pursuing the greater goal is to understand the structure that God has given us for our work, our friendships, our marriages, and our church. I was listening, uh, watching a little video of a, a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley giving an address to a Georgia State Legislature. And something that he said that, that really stuck with me was this point that disagreement is pretty inevitable. It just is. We're we're different people. We're going to have disagreements. But what he said is division is always a choice. Disagreement is inevitable. Division is always a choice. And that's so relevant to the church, especially today. Uh, Sympathy. Sympathy. Marshall had a, another great definition of this. Entering into other people's experiences to share the joy or lessen the sorrow. Again, the temptation, the temptation for this is to stay aloof. Right? People are messy. I don't want to get involved in that. And so we stay aloof and we don't enter into people's experiences and lives. Love. Uh, here it's called brotherly love, indicating that it's the it's the word Philadelphia. So again, this is this is primarily talking about relationships with other believers. But it's truly this central motivation and characteristic. God is love. He is love. That is his essence and God demonstrated his love that while we were still sinners Christ died for us the whole of God's law boils down to love right love God love people that's it everything else is describing how we do that And so this is what should direct the Christians' interactions. And of course, our temptation, we don't have a problem with love. Our temptation is to love only ourselves. Having a tender heart, or other translations say compassion. Again, going back to Marshall, he said, Surely it is also possible for the Christian to learn to become more compassionate and loving to the needy. The point may well be that we need to learn to love those who are poorer in circumstances than ourselves, despite the very natural temptation to love the people who occupy a similar station in life to ourselves. That one was really convicting. You know, how easy is it to help a friend? Someone who's helped you before, someone who's willing to pay back, someone who's willing to help you in the future. You just know that and it's not that big a deal. But, but what about helping people who have no ability to pay you back or to help you? And I think even, even a situation like with Safe Place, I hope we bless them with a ton of stuff. I really do. And I know this is a this is an interesting ministry because because of the private nature of what they're experiencing, it's not like we can all just go and get involved with everyone's life there, but but I don't want this to be something where we buy a gift card and we pat ourselves on the back and we're like there we're done. I want us to continue to, to pray for that um, and to help as best we can. Again, not just through one and done things. Humility or a humble mind. This is deference to others and putting other people's needs above your own. It's not natural for us, right? To be able to do so is truly supernatural. Because our temptation is to put ourselves first. It's not that we can't think about ourselves, but we need to think about others as well. And our temptation is to have a win-lose mentality in a lot of our relationships rather than a God wins and how can God be glorified. But That's scary. It's scary to, to just think about that because... There are a lot of things in life that are win-lose. Right? There's a final score in all games. There's a, you know, you get the promotion or you don't. You know, how are we supposed to get ahead with these kind of characteristics, with compassion and humility? Especially if we're dealing with people who don't share the same worldview like verse 9 would seem to indicate. The fear is that people will walk all over us. And so, motivated by fear of being taken advantage of, or fear of something bad happening, we try and prevent it. You do something to me, I'm going to do something to you. And maybe I do something a little bit more and then maybe you feel (laughs) like you need to continue that. The cycle continues. It makes for great movie plots but terrible relationships. Could I get a quick volunteer? Anyone? Braxton. I knew I could count on you, buddy. Come on up here. I want you to watch... Yeah, come on right up here. I want you to watch because we've all experienced this before, I imagine, I want you to watch what happens when we try and one-up each other, when we try and get the upper hand, okay? I just need to borrow your hand, all right? So, Braxton and I, in a relationship, uh, I I need to get the upper hand, right? Because that's just kind of our sin nature, right? Maybe he did something to me, I need to have the upper hand now. And so now what's Braxton's? What's Braxton's move? right? He's going to try to get the upper hand as well. Well, that doesn't seem fair because I thought I was justified the first time. Here I am. Guess what's going to happen next? <laughs> Until what? what? What happens? It becomes unsustainable. It's right? It's, it's unsustainable. It doesn't work. What if... What if the posture was changed. Braxton, hold out your hand again. What if instead of one-upping Braxton, I say, how can I serve and bless you? We are to trade one-upping one another for one-anothering. Worst case scenario, I get to serve and bless Braxton and maybe he takes advantage of me, right? Best case scenario, maybe he's shocked by this. And maybe, maybe we start scrambling to figure out how we can serve and bless one another, right? So maybe he does this, right? Turn your hand over, right? And where, does, where do we end up? On our knees. Which is probably the best posture for a Christian to be anyway. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Right? It's not. It's not losing just because you're not winning. Peter says that the Christian's job, the Christian's calling, is to bless. And... That being a blessing results in a blessing. Now, I think it can mean in this life, Peter is very forward-thinking. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Peter has in mind the promise of the gospel, which is eternal, lifelong relationship with God. Being a blessing results in a blessing. He undergirds this whole argument with a passage from the Psalms. In Psalm 34, and he he quotes it here, starting in verse 10. Writing, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, we just finished up a series on the book of Proverbs, Wisdom Literature. And I think Proverbs and Psalms share a fair amount of this, this message, this wisdom message. Right, That if you pursue righteousness, God will bless you. And it will be against those who are against you. And so, Peter appeals to this benefit of being a blessing to those even who hate you. It's a blessing to you and we'll also see it's a blessing to others. But the implication here is that seeking peace, those who seek peace, those who seek righteousness will achieve it because God's watching you and he's just. Living a righteous life allows a relationship with God without a barrier, including the barrier to prayer. We saw that even earlier in, in the passage about spouses. We don't want something hindering our relationship, and sin is always a hindrance. But I want you to focus on some of these action words in this passage. Because this requires an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of restraint. That was, that was the thing that really stood out in my mind reading this passage. Look at this. Keep his tongue from evil. That's restraint. Keep his lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue Peace. Again, these are not natural things to have happen. Otherwise we wouldn't have to work with the power of the Holy Spirit against those things. And in terms of culture, Christians are paddling upstream. Right? There is a there is a tie, there is a flow of culture that is not going towards God. Christ has always been countercultural. But I think it matters a great deal how we view this restraint, especially. So I think a lot of us probably see restraint as weakness. But I think it actually shows the most strength. Right? We have an incredible ability to, to hurt, to strike back, to win. But if you add to that ability or that potential self-control, that's the real strength. And if we voluntarily, again, with the help of the Holy Spirit, which we desperately need, if we voluntarily restrain ourselves from evil and restrain ourselves from repaying evil for evil, it's a lot different than being restrained. Right, where we feel like someone else has tied our hands. This is, this is Peter's explanation and justification in case we're not motivated solely by Christ's example. Right, all of this is, is a reassurance to the reader that God is actually watching over the righteous and that those that do evil do not win, at least ultimately. Ultimately. God created us. He knows how we're motivated. I I would argue that there's nothing that we do that isn't motivated by some benefit to us or perceived benefit to us. I know that sounds really selfish. Um, but try arguing that. Right, again, it's it's not I don't think it's bad for us to be motivated towards something good that seems natural what's unnatural is God's economy being motivated to do the thing that doesn't seem to make sense in this world that's the part that's unnatural but we're to obey and to be righteous because it's better for us but also it's better for everyone. So I don't think we should be motivated just for ourselves, but pursuing righteousness is better for everyone. As Peter concludes this passage, he asks a question, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? than for doing evil. Peter begins with this rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? With a rhetorical question, you would assume the answer would be yes. I mean, the, you would assume the answer would be no one. Forget what I said, it's the opposite. Yeah. Right, no one, right? We just read about that in in Psalms. And yet Peter goes into verse 14, and the answer is actually, well, probably someone. Someone's probably there to harm you. There's a theme in this writing, as with other writings in the Bible, that it was hard for me not to think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their response when the king was trying to get them to bow down and worship an image. Right. what they said is, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in other words, maybe there is someone to harm you and maybe not and maybe God will deliver you in this life or maybe not. But the path is still clear. The path is crystal clear to pursue righteousness. And Peter opens us up to that possibility that that there's a distinct possibility, a distinct probability that this life will be unpleasant in some respects, even because of your faith. And from the Christian perspective, it's not a bad thing. It's interesting that the Isaiah passage that Peter loosely quotes in in verse 15 refers to God as the Lord of hosts. This is a military term, i.e. God is over the angel armies. That's who we're dealing with. And so when Peter says, don't fear them, like people who are doing you evil, people who are reviling you or saying awful things about you, because of your faith. I'm saying don't fear them. Fear God. Fear God. The fear is real. That someone will take advantage of us. That something will not be fair. That something will be a lie. That someone will get that upper hand over us. But Peter says several things in response to that. One, it's not our job, right? Our job is to bless, not to fear, at least not men. There's way more at stake than just our individual comfort or even our individual lives. There's something greater happening. And he also says that if we are to fear, and we are, we're to fear God alone alone not people. God has power over our souls. People just have power over our bodies. And third, he says if if it happens, it happens. Not a so what as in no big deal. It's a big deal. but let's think about some other suffering in history that has resulted in good things. How about Jesus Christ? His suffering resulted in everyone here who is a believer having eternal life with God, having that as a possession right here, right now, never to be taken away. So we can't say that nothing good can come out of suffering. And it just so happens that we're supposed to follow Christ's example, so chances are we may experience that. Although, if you're anything like me, I tend to spend a fair amount of my life avoiding suffering or discomfort or inconvenience. And maybe that's fair to a certain extent. Nobody, nobody likes suffering. It's natural to want to avoid suffering. But again, it's supernatural to embrace it when it happens. Again, maybe not to seek it, but to embrace it if it should happen because of what can come out of it. The way Jesus suffered begged questions like, how could this not be the Son of God? Questions like that. And if we suffer well, it can beg some questions. Questions, Peter says, that we need to be prepared to answer. Someone asking a reason for the hope that is in you requires hope to be in you. And I think hope is a light best seen in darkness. It actually thrives in suffering. You know, if everything is going pretty well and we don't think too deeply, then, you know, Jesus, light of the world, can kind of seem like an add-on. Like an insurance policy. In case things get bad, something for ambiance, but kind of a restrictive one at that. But when things are dim, when things are dark, the light of the world is much more easily seen and recognizable. I think that's one of the things that Christians have. there are a lot of ways to get people to be nice. There are different ways of getting people to be generous, famous, rich, influential. But I think the thing that Christians have is the ability to suffer well and to bless others. Knowing that Knowing that it's not in vain. That it means something. It turns into something. So when we suffer well for the sake of righteousness, questions may come. Questions should come. And we need to be able to answer. And we need to be able to answer in a way that is, Peter says, gentle and respectful. Right as tempting as it may be to tell someone who has done evil to us to go to hell we have to be really cognizant that that may in fact be what we're saying to them and instead the response that glorifies God is an explanation of the gospel this is the winning over part winning over over winning it's a defense it's it's not offense All right we don't need to be offensive in the way that we answer peter says gentle and respectful which is really hard when things are happening and you're caught up in all of this. But friends, the gospel is offensive in and of itself. We don't need to have the manner in which we share it or explain it to be offensive. And we also don't need to feel that or need to feel like we have to be defensive about it either. We're not We're not defending ourselves. We're pointing people to God. Providing the reason for the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. Now there are a couple of caveats. This only applies when we're living for Christ right it is it is not suffering for righteous, righteous, righteousness if something happens to you and you're a christian if you get fired from your job because you can't show up to work on time that's not persecution you just need an alarm clock you just got fired that's it Right, we don't need to read more into that. It's only suffering in, in this case, I think where Peter is going in this particular passage, and I know it can be broader in the context of the whole letter, but I think in this particular passage he's talking about specifically suffering for being a Christian, because you're a Christian. Right? So you get fired because you won't lie, cheat, or steal. That's different. You get canceled or put in prison because you own a Bible or share the gospel. That's different. Again, you can only be slandered if what they're saying isn't true. Otherwise, it's just a description. So that's what we're talking about here. That's why it's incredibly important that we need to have a good conscience. The way Peter describes it here. Uh, Having behaved and thought in a way that is consistent with Christ. knowing that the suffering that you're enduring is because you're following Jesus rather than because you're participating in evil. And while I would hope that to some extent, right, the Christian kind of resembles Teflon, that nothing sticks, sometimes it does, sometimes it's out there. I think especially in this age, where one little click and it's out there forever right? the damage might be done and I would certainly hope that the shame of the revilers that Peter talks about here would come in this life when they respond to the gospel and recognize their evil and turn from it I'm sure that's Peter's hope that's certainly my hope At the very least, they will recognize their evil on judgment day. And as Peter concludes this, there's such a vast difference between these two options that he says at the end. Verse 17 is such an understatement that it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For the Christian, it's the difference between being a a blessing and being blessed and being a jerk. Like those are the options in verse 17. And in a general sense, I think that verse describes this whole dichotomy of good and evil. One path involves likely suffering in this world, but in eternity filled with the glory of God. The other, the other is potentially winning in this world, and an eternity of suffering apart from God. That's why we must, must pursue winning over, and value winning over, over winning. you live life in such a way that you value winning over people over winning you can never lose in the long run. Never. So yes if someone does evil to you you can defend the gospel. And this is really radical teaching. There's that tension that internal conflict because it doesn't quite seem right and i have to be honest with you i feel like i'm i'm preaching this entire sermon in ignorance not of what it says but of of what some experience i can honestly stand up here and say i don't think i've ever suffered because i'm a christian And maybe that says something about me that I don't put myself in situations where that's a possibility. But I do know what Scripture says. And some of you might be in that same boat. We need to be prepared. And that's why Peter's words, that's why God's words through Peter are so important to us today. And I can't think of a better way to to end than by simply reading God's word. Peter's authorship of these words came through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And a life spent following the one who said the following words. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful amen